Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Josh Green, the author of the new book, The Rebels, and one of the great political journalists in America. Now, remember, we love taking your questions. So write into politicsroarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Earth Breeze and Miracle Made, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors because it really helps make this podcast happen. So please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, James, New Hampshire is over. The presidential primaries are over. Uh, several takeaways from uh, New Hampshire. It was a big Trump victory. It was a huge Trump victory. He won by double digits. There was a, I thought there might not be much of a turnout. There was uh, a bigger turnout even than usual in a state that always turns out. And it, and it removes any doubt this is the Trump Republican Party. If you talk to most of those Trump people and you brought up the 40th president, uh, they would say Ronald who. Trump now dominates. Uh, Nikki Haley says she's going to go on. She'll get over that. I think she'll probably uh, reconsider that in a couple days or certainly weeks. She doesn't want to go to South Carolina, her home state, and get clobbered uh, in, in a month. And that's what would happen. Uh, so she ran the best race of any of the Trump opponents but it wasn't to be, and uh, it is everyone now is standing in line. He was up there on the uh, – I watched Fox uh, last night because they stuck with uh, his the, – the single most graceless victory speech I have ever seen. All he did was insult people like Haley. I mean, after you beat someone by 11 or 12 points, you know, you really – you want to bring him in the tent, not Donald Trump. He insulted – suggested the governor of New Hampshire enormously popular up there, you know, maybe drugged up or something. So it was just – it was just Trump and he had the three sycophants, Tim Scott and – what is his name, Bavek Ramaswamy and the governor of North Dakota, whose name I can never, never remember. Uh, as long as they stand behind him and smile and laugh at all of his dumb remarks, uh, then they're the, you know, the three stooges have earned their keep. You know, I make a couple other points, though, James. Um, there was almost as much bad news, if you really look at this carefully for Trump, as there was good news. 47 percent of the Republican, of the people who pulled the Republican lever, granted a number of those were independents, 47% said Trump would not be fit to be president if convicted of a crime. Now, there's at least a 50-50 chance that's going to happen. Uh, I can't see a whole lot of those people voting for him. And whereas I think that Joe Biden is very weak, I thought he made a mistake and not in uh, canceling the Democratic uh, presidential primary in New Hampshire. Maybe it didn't matter. One of the polls that struck me three or four days before the primary, James, was a Maris poll. Uh, Biden has a 38 percent approval rating in New Hampshire. That's awful. That's really terrible. I mean, that's not, you know, that's seven, eight points below what you have to be. But Head-to-head, he runs seven points ahead of Trump and three points up even when all the riffraff is uh, thrown in. So, yeah, it was a big night for Trump. He cinched the nomination. Haley, I think, will drop out soon. But uh, the Donald is not without his problems. Well, uh, his speech was – he was mad. He got – she stayed in. All right. Her speech was actually – I, I have very little respect for her political skills, 
I, 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 but that was the, I think the best speech I'd ever, I'd ever seen to give it. I watched yeah, it. I, thought she was good. I couldn't watch the whole thing. And by his standards, it was even more crazy. Please don't oh, get me go started ahead. on Take Tim a while. Scott. I, I'd rather not go. <laughs> I, I'd rather not go there. Okay. I mean, good God. I, it, people's, but I think Haley is thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to win this thing, but Trump may, Trump, something could happen to him. Right. Physically, legally, uh, something. And I think she's saying, I was, you got to go with me. I gave myself, I was out there with voters. You, you can't go the back room way. And I think she thinks there's a 2% chance she'd get the nomination, which would be exaggerated. But there is a some chance, and why not just be the last one standing and, you know, and say, so Trump gets the nomination. Of course, he's convicted, and, and we find out so much more about him than we already know. And then in 2028, mm-hmm. she becomes the I told you so candidate. So her hanging around is actually there's some political reason for it. She has some some money, uh, and, and and she's go, you know in South Carolina just croaker, but but that's thirty one days. I didn't realize that. We got another well, month to go before we get to South think, Carolina. My memory, I couldn't. You, but that, right. that's a long right. gap time right. between New Hampshire and you know, and you know she's there's a there's there's still some football left to play. And I, I I think her hanging around. At some level, actually makes ordinarily, sense. James. I would agree with you, but I think if you get clobbered, and she's going to get clobbered in that South Carolina primary, the only shot she had, which was remote, was to win in New Hampshire and gather some momentum and home state pride. But to uh, lose, you know, I don't know, twenty points, twenty five points in your home state. I, I don't know. I think that's tough. I think that's tough. Yeah. Well, it, that, that'll be the end of a campaign, but she, I, I think she's running for reasons well, I, I agree other with than that. to and win Trump, right now. I mean, the, the only issue, if Trump and, and, gets uh, convicted, which, as I say, I think is probably better than 50-50. I don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do on his absurd immunity uh, right. claim. But if that occurs and that uh, January 6th trial, uh, you know, occurs sometime in, say, June and he gets convicted, the Republican Party's not going to throw him out. He owns them. They're afraid of him. So uh, and uh, I, he'll run as a um, you know I, as a convicted criminal. Uh, I don't think he'll win, but he'll run. Well, I, I I want her to go through South Carolina for one simple reason. I want to see more of Tim Scott, and I want to see more of Tim Scott's wife to be. Maybe we'll find out some things here. All right? I cannot well, get tell us enough why. of Tim Scott. Last night, with his trying, well, first of all, all right, everybody in politics is practical. Everybody in politics looks out for themselves. That's the nature of the system works. She appointed him. He didn't exist without her, right? And I could see that, well, could call her and say, look, Governor, I I owe everything to you, but I got to stay Bible politically. Trump is just too popular. He Get out of his way, out of his way to 
be part of the whole Trump, Eddie, Nikki Haley stuff. And, and if you looked at him last night, he kept trying to get in the picture. Trump would move his head one way and Scott would move his head the other way. And then when, when Trump called up Vivek and gave him one minute and he didn't bring up Scott, you can see the guy was all, you know, it was crestfallen. I, just, I think he's become such a character to, of the modern Republican Party. And, you know, as I say, we got, I want to see more of him and I want to see more of this bride-to-be. Uh, the preliminary stuff that I'm hearing is she might have had some issues. But let, let, let's well, and when he finally did uh, speak, when Trump finally let him speak with a time limit on it. Uh, it was, as you say, totally banal. I don't understand why some conservative anti-Trump Republicans are still going to vote or still want the Republicans to win and say, well, Tim Scott would be our savior. These are the same people who I think with some justification say Kamala Harris isn't up to it. She's a hell of a lot more up to it than Tim Scott. This is, and you saw, by the way, our friend Tom Edsel right on the morning this morning, the normalization right. of Trump, all right? It's Roger Lowenstein, it's Jamie Dimon, it, it, it's Tim Scott. It's like, well, there are two different candidates out there, there are two different visions. Uh, you know, let's go to, to November. And, and no, this is not normal, not at all. And everybody has a point in history. Every point in history, somebody has a grievance, right? This is not storming the Capitol, claiming that you're going to be a dictator, being adjudicated in a court of law as being a rapist. a rapist, right? That's not normal. The Judge Kaplan said by any definition, common parlance of the word rape, the jury found that he'd raped this woman. That's a fact. In every sentence ought to be Donald Trump, an adjudicated rapist, right? This is not normal. And everybody wants to show how in touch they are with the common man. Everybody wants to cover a race. Everybody, and, and there's just huge tendency to say this is Biden's got a record. He's got a vision. Trump's got a record. He's got a vision. Let's go to post and see what happens. No. No one would say, well, you know, we cut the oil off from Japan in, in you know, in 1941, or, the, you know, Western colonialists were exploiting Asians, which they were. So we'll just go ahead and haul off and bomb Pearl Harbor and invade 20 different countries because we're out of point. No, you don't. You don't. It's the same thing with Hamas. The, 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 the Palestinians have agreements. You're damn right they do. All right? But, but does that, is that say, is that normal to go out and rape people and cut babies' heads off? Of course it's not. But, but if you just listen and you wait, then there's this whole normalization. And, you know, maybe the plumber will go one way and not the other and something, and Trump will come back and, you know what, we'll... John Kelly confirmed, all right, we knew it was true because we knew he told Jeffrey Goldberg, it was no secret. He came out and said, he said all of this. The commander in chief of the armed forces of the United States 
said people that served in the armed forces were suckers. Well, we wonder why recruitment is down. We know he's got a lot of following. I don't know. That's not normal. It's not to say we over-deploy troops and we get involved in too much foreign adventurism. That's normal. We should have international treaties and NATO and CETO and whatever else. That's normal. Questioning the, the use of American power is normal. Mocking people who serve in the military is not fucking normal. And it shouldn't be treated that way at all. It's not an alternative view. And we, we fall in, we lapse it into it, we lapse it into it, we lapse it into it. You can see it. The, the, the Jason Miller is down there in Iowa in a hotel Fort Des Moines holding court with all of the reporters writing everything that he says down and, you know, going to lunch and, you know, it's just, just another campaign. It's like being with Carl Rove. No, it's not. Not at all. And these people are chicken shit. They don't understand history. And we have to do a job of calling them out and mocking Man, them. Man, you were you were on a roll. You were right, uh, and I know you will keep it up, uh, J- James. I'm going to say there were yeah, a couple winners out of Tuesday night: Scott Walker, Tim Pawlenty, and the descendants of Ed Muskie. They can know <laughs> now that they did not run the worst presidential <laughs> primary campaign ever. Ron DeSantis took that prize. Only a year ago, he was leading the polls. There was talk of him dethroning Trump. He made an utter fool of himself, culminating in his, whatever it was, concession, get out of jail speech, uh, where he quoted Winston Churchill on something that Churchill never said. And he took another crack at Tony (laughs) Fauci. There's a difference between those two. Fauci saved lives DeSantis cost lives in Florida. Look at his COVID record. So I want to tell you, Tim and Scott and and and, and later Muskies, uh, you know, you can feel a little bit better today than you did, uh, uh, you know, a week or so ago. Yeah, yeah it, the, the other thing is we forget when DeSantis started. I mean, Tim Pawlenty started. No one thought he was going to win fucking win it, okay? It did. Scott Walker, not so much. Maybe a little more serious than Palente, but not so much. But DeSantis was a real powerful Ivy League educated, had won his reelection by 19 points, it was the kind of leader of the, the anti-woke faction. He had a, a, a nice family. His wife was a breast cancer survivor, I think. He had a nice little story, and he had money out of the wazoo. I mean, he'd raise money. I, if when I come back in this world, I, I want, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna study how to middle interest rates because these Republican billionaire donors are the dumbest freaking people I've ever seen in my life. But at any rate, that okay, you're not gonna be the bond market. All right, he, from you take. <laughs> Okay, right. Uh, this yeah, was uh, we got a lot more to discuss that James has brought up tonight in the weeks ahead. Earth Breeze, a lean, mean cleaning machine. I just love clean clothes. I, I, I don't ask me why, but I, 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 they say you shouldn't do this. 
I change clothes twice a day. I actually wash jeans, which everybody says is appalling environmentally. There's no need to do it. They wear it better if they're dirty. I, I, I just can't change. If you, when you put that detergent in there, whatever it is, I don't want to single any particular name out, look and find out what's in it. And understand that shit don't go anywhere. It goes right into the borderline, which goes right into the river or right into the bay or right into wherever all this shit's being discharged. And Earth Breeze is going to give you a better wash. Yeah, I love the smell of clean clothes. I love the way they feel. I know it's environmentally unsound. But, you know, and, and we've said this a thousand times on this show. We'll repeat it. It's products like this that are at the end of the day are going to make a difference in the, the war we have it against climate pollution, dirty water, dirty anything. So this is a great product. Uh, and if you, you're a clean freak like me, it's more important that you use it. Yeah, and just imagine the massive chunk of plastic in a jug of laundry detergent. Then think Ooh. of all the plastic you use every day and try not to think about all the microplastic we end up putting in our bodies. Fortunately, there's a solution to make our lives greener and reduce the plastic waste we're leaving future generations. Forget about dishing out cups of goo. Switch to a pre-measured liquid-less laundry detergent sheet that dissolves in all wash cycles with no measuring, no mess, and no heavy lifting. That's why Earth Breeze is our favorite detergent. There's no plastic jug, and it's so much easier to use. The packaging is a cardboard envelope that saves so much space. You get 720 loads of sheets where the jug would have gone. Old-fashioned detergent can make you so itchy. Earth Breeze is a dermatologist-tested delight, and you'll truly feel the difference. You know, you sign up for their subscription immediately. Earth Breeze is delivered with free carbon offset shipping right when you need it. Plus, you can adjust, pause, or cancel the subscription without hidden fees or penalties. You know, be done with going to the store, especially because Earth Breeze gives a powerful clean that's tough on stains, fights odors, and works great every time. Earth Breeze even donates 10 loads of detergent to a charitable cause with your purchase. So you're doing good for people and the planet. Over 100 million loads have been donated already. Now, we can't always wait to put on an outfit fresh out of the dryer. We don't, well, a lot of us don't change clothes twice a day like James does, but soft always beats itchy. So join over 2 million Americans making a difference with Earth Breeze. There's a 100% satisfaction guarantee so if you don't like it, you'll get a full refund. No questions asked and no return needed. Trust me, there is no reason not to switch. Right now, our listeners can subscribe to Earth Breeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash warroom to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash warroom for 40% off. Again, earthbreeze.com slash warroom. You also can find the link in our show notes. Hey, 
Hey, James, on this one, I know from whence I speak. Josh Green is one of the great political reporters. We worked together at Bloomberg. He was a superstar. His new book, The Rebels, How the Left is Ascending and Setting the Agenda for Democrats. Josh, uh, welcome, first of all. Let let me just tell a story because I think it goes uh, uh, to your book. Uh, uh, In 2016, I went to a small western Pennsylvania, old seal town, Manassas. And over lunch, a half dozen voters, one guy asked me, how are you all doing after in Washington, doing after the 2009 depression? Depression. I said, yeah, we're doing okay. He said, and how the hell are all those rich guys on Wall Street that caused this thing? How are they doing? I said, they're doing pretty well. He, saw, he said, and you know what? We got fucked. <laughs> and that was something that told me that maybe <laughs> Donald Trump had some appeal. I didn't think he was going to win. But I think the, you know, the one of the the, the great uh, many great things about your book is that you trace the populist left ascendancy or movement in the Democratic Party back to that 09 recession. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, to me, you know, I just turned 50. And to me, the, the definitive political event in my adulthood as a Washington reporter was the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath. Because I could see reporting in Washington, and especially when I went out to places like Western Pennsylvania, that it had just caused this earthquake and that it gave rise to a right-wing populist backlash, which led to the Tea Party and Trump, which was the subject of my last book. Um, But I wanted to write about the left, and it also gave uh, rise to a left-wing populist movement that hadn't really existed in the Democratic Party for a number of decades. Um, But Driven, you know, I argue in the book by my three characters, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, really built out this splinter group within the Democratic Party that was powered by that kind of um, deep anger and economic dissatisfaction that you're talking about now. Well, Elizabeth Warren, Harvard law professor, bankruptcy expert, that's not exactly, uh, you know, the model uh, for a, uh, a political leader, a political champion. But she was, uh, she became one after the Wall Street boys tried to diss her. Yeah, I think she's a pretty remarkable historical figure. You know, weirdly, yeah. I was introduced to her in 2008 by Chuck Schumer. I was embedded with Schumer during the 08, right before the election. And Schumer was just on fire that I had to meet this Harvard professor who he thought all her academic scholarship uh, about the struggles of two-income families sort of validated Schumer's version of what Democrats should be arguing for. And he literally took me by the arm and dragged me in to meet her. That was my first exposure to Warren. Uh, you know, shortly after that, she took over the job of TARP oversight cop. You know, she was she was one of the people policing that Wall Street bailout. And she used this pretty forgettable job with no subpoena power to turn it into a platform to really publicly push her brand of politics, which included um, publicly criticizing people like Barack Obama, Tim Geithner, Larry Summers. And it really did spark a a movement that I think helped change the direction of the Democratic Party in the 15 years since then. You know, we talk about the Warren Sanders wing, and they are the the populist um, uh, progressives, if you will. But But there's a difference. Unlike her colleague Bernie Sanders, Warren insists she's really a capitalist. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Warren, look, Warren started out as a Republican, you know, when right. she was when she was living in Texas. It wasn't a particularly political person. But one of the differentiators between her and Bernie Sanders, and this came to the fore in the 2020 Democratic primaries, was that Sanders is a loud and proud Democratic socialist 
and Warren wanted to position herself a tick to the right uh, and said that she was a capitalist, certainly a left-leaning capitalist, uh, because I think she wanted to have a broader appeal that could pull in mainstream Democratic voters, independents, and even some Republicans who were moderate or who liked the brand of economic populism uh, that she started off espousing. Josh, the three main characters which you really bring alive uh, in, in The Rebels is Warren Sanders and AOC. Um, and they believe they're the future of the Democrats, but they don't win. That side doesn't win many elections at all uh, and any general elections. And in the House, they were really tamed by Nancy Pelosi. I think that's right. I mean, the, the interesting alternative history for me, there, there are two that I talk about in the book. One is... Uh, and Elizabeth Warren was at the height of her powers in about 2014, 2015. And there was a lot of talk and a lot of pressure on her to run for president. And I remember talking to Barney Frank, the Massachusetts congressman at the time, who said, you know, Warren right now is the most powerful Democrat we have. Everybody is afraid to talk, you know, to criticize her. Uh, and there was, you know, back, back then we used to write about the Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, she had a certain... She had a veto power over, over certain policies with, with, with Democrats, and she used it. But I don't think Elizabeth Warren ever really wanted to be president. And so she decided not to run. Of course, Hillary Clinton ran and lost. Uh, and then I think the other fateful alternative history was, what if only Warren or Sanders had run in the 2020 Democratic primaries? The minute both of them got in, they split the populist left vote. Uh, and it was clear that neither one of them was going to win race went to Joe Biden instead, I think because people wanted to get rid of Donald Trump. But the real problem that all three of these politicians have, I think, in a kind of broader national sense, is that they're, they're kind of coded to people as being radicals. Uh, and they helped do that to themselves. Uh, Warren and Bernie in particular, I think, in 2020, when instead of just pushing the economic populism, which had been really popular when they first arrived on the scene in the wake of the financial crisis. Now they broadened out into, well, we want to abolish private health insurance and push a $30 trillion Medicare for all plan. We want to defund the police. We want to open up border crossings. And that was just a bridge too far for a lot of Democratic voters. And I think their their subsequent collapse in the polls and, and the fact that they eventually gave way to Joe Biden uh, shows that these three people, or at least at least Warren and Sanders, probably aren't future Democratic nominees. Um, but they've been fortunate enough that Joe Biden has taken up large chunks of their policy as president and put a lot of this stuff into practice. James, so, so Josh, when I look at the left, whatever whatever that means. I see the old Bernie Sanders left, which was basically about class and economics and how, how you apportion the resources of the country. And then I see what I call the NPR left. That is all identity all the time. And my own view is the identity left has drug the economic left down. And why, why, why did they segue into no borders and defund the police and Latinx and all the stupid shit that no one likes? Uh, what, what caused, what, what, what do you think that switch, that transformation came? How, how did they morph, how did Elizabeth Warren morph into letting a 12-year-old transgender student say you can veto the Secretary of Education? I, I, I think one guy explains that transformation in the Democratic Party, and it's Donald Trump. If you look at what 
people like Warren and Sanders stood for before 2016. It was the kind of economic populism that historically has had a lot of appeal, whether it's a wealth tax on billionaires, raising taxes on the rich, uh, you know, a big stimulus aimed at the middle class after a financial crisis, what have you. I think that once Trump became president and started doing things like banning Muslim people, uh, you know, attacking gay and transgender people, just kind of spewing the, the, the hate against every non-white male Christian group that was out there, people on the left reacted with such horror that it became a kind of moral imperative among people on the left to not just oppose Trump to the extreme degree on economics, but on every other situation as well. So if Trump wanted to build a border wall, Democrats wanted to open up the border. If Trump was out there praising police that killed George Floyd, Democrats wanted to defund the police. Um, you know, I, I think politically it created a kind of naive suspension of the actual rules of electoral politics, which are that, you know, ultimately you have to listen to the median voter if you wanna if you wanna keep power. And I think the Democrats so overshot the mark on that thing in 2020, that they were lucky that there was one safe, normie, centrist, non-threatening presidential candidate left, and it was Joe Biden who managed to hold together just enough of a Democratic coalition to knock off Donald Trump. Yeah, somebody was talking to somebody. So you, you you couldn't explain what woke is to Joe Biden. He, he couldn't even know what you were talking about. What's <laughs> hard these people? And what you talking about, pal? You know. My dad carried a lunch bucket. Well, they, they, but yeah. language and is really or defund the police. What are you talking about, pal? My uncle was a deputy sheriff in Lackawanna <laughs> County or something, all right? But so now going forward, where does the left of the Democratic Party, where do they see that role going forward? Do they see themselves as nominating a presidential candidate? Did they see themselves in kind of splinter third party? How, how, how would the, the, the little less Sanders, because he's pretty old, and he's kind of what he is. I mean, yeah, I, you got to yeah. give him, he, he doesn't, he, he, he thinks all identity is class. He doesn't, he, yeah. I don't think Bernie is that big into racial differences. He thinks that there's the toiling class and the money class, and he knows what side he's on. But Maybe that's an oversimplification, but I don't think too great an oversimplification. But the 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 younger people on the left, specifically the AOCs and the Squadettes or whatever they got, what if you talk to them, where do they see their future? It's a good question because I don't think that they're a uniform block. Uh, of, of people, and I don't think that they all see politics the same way. I mean, to me, the interesting thing about the evolution of AOC, and this is the story I tell in The Rebels, is that she came in out of nowhere as a radical democratic socialist, knocked off Joe Crowley, um, you know, the presumed successor to Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, and came in with her climate activist allies and occupied Nancy Pelosi's office before she'd even been sworn in as president. Uh, I, was, I was up on Capitol Hill. Nobody had seen anything like this. Nobody knew what to make of her. And I think a lot of younger people thought that storming the castle this way, storming the gates, they could force Democrats in Congress to kind of bend to their will and 
put into practice this big, robust left-wing policy agenda. Uh, And as you know, that never happened. I think what is interesting is that AOC kept down this path for about six months, and it became clear to her that it wasn't working. Nancy Pelosi brought her into her office and basically said, from from what I was told by people around Pelosi, look, you're not going to get anything done. You have no allies. Nobody likes you. If you want to be successful in Congress, you have to put together a coalition. You have to be able uh, to bring people together. And at that point, uh, AOC fired the radicals on her staff. It, It sort of changed her stripes as a politician suddenly began emulating Elizabeth Warren more. She was uh, very powerful at oversight hearings. She could create these kind of viral beatdown moments that rocketed all over YouTube and social media. And she also started working with the Biden administration, who put her on a task force after he got elected to work on climate. And if you look at what Joe Biden did, it didn't get advertised this way, but the Inflation Reduction Act had $300 billion dollars in climate money, biggest climate bill in U.S. history. So I think for practical-minded progressives, and I would I would mostly include AOC in that camp, they have understood that if we want to advance our agenda, we need to do it through Joe Biden for now. Now, there are a lot of other ones that don't. They just go on Twitter and they bitch and moan or they complain or they call everybody sellouts. Uh, But I think that all three of my candidates, look, any one of the three, Warren, Bernie, or AOC, if they wanted to, could have decided to run for president in 2024 in the Democratic primary and challenged Joe Biden. And the fact that none of them made that decision, I think, shows that they've all gone from being outsider activists to insiders who understand how politics and policy work, and that you have to be able to work through other politicians if you want to get something done. So, so Josh, I remember when AOC burst on the scene. My wife and I, one of the rare times, that we were watching the television news, and she came on. She's on for about 15 seconds, and my wife looked at me and she says, y'all need to watch her. She's got talent. And I, one of the things that I hate is what I call lumping, okay? Like everybody, I'll, I'll lump all black people together and I'll lump all gay people together and I'll lump all Muslim people together. And it's just a, a tendency that people have. But everybody on the left of the Democratic Party is not equal talent. She is obviously, and if you look at her, her questions during hearings or the speeches she gives, She's obviously got some some, some first class footwork. That's boxing. I guess you'd call it politics staff work. Uh, Do you think she's trying to break out? She has some hope that she can just sort of slightly break out of that and, you know, maybe run for the Senate or or be in leadership one day. Uh, Is she kind of satisfied with her niche status now? I don't think she's satisfied with niche status at all. I think what what AOC figured out, and remember, she has a background as an organizer. And the way she beat Joe Crowley was very cleverly understanding the rules, understanding how to organize to beat him in a way that nobody saw coming. I think one of the things she understands, and she was pulled into politics by Bernie Sanders in his 2016 campaign. And we all remember, you know, Bernie Sanders came out of nowhere just this curmudgeonly old guy, nobody pay any attention to. And all of a sudden, within a month, he's pulling stadium rallies. He becomes this, this 
almost cult-like figure, especially among young Democrats. And I think that AOC understood the power of that kind of appeal, especially on social media. The idea that if you want to change the national conversation and have it be about the issues that you care about, left-wing issues, then you need to build an audience and you need to build a movement. And so to me, you know, one of the interesting things she did when she got to Congress was every night she would go home and she would turn on her computer and she would go on Instagram and she would start live streaming while she cooked dinner. And she would just start talking to the camera about like what had happened in Congress that day. You know, what was really going on, what the people were fighting about, what, who, who it was that was blocking things like Medicare for all. And what you saw was day after day after day, more and more people would be signing up for these live streams. And so there's hundreds of thousands of people watching AOC cook spaghetti and explaining how the political system works and how her viewers can go out, put pressure on other legislators, register to run for office, who they should give money to, what they should be thinking about. And it helped elevate her from you know, a freshman House member, which is about the weakest, most power, powerless position you could have, to somebody who really was a national spokesman for her party, and, and in particular for the left populist wing of her party. So I give her a great deal of credit uh, as a politician for figuring out that it's not just about staff work, it's not just about how you vote, it's that you need to build an entire movement if you want to have political power. And she, more than anybody else, I think, has been remarkably effective at doing that. Now, James, your question about, well, what's, what's the ultimate goal here? I think that's the tantalizing question about AOC because she's still viewed, look, you turn on Fox News, they're talking about AOC and what a radical she is. I, I think it's going to be hard for her to win statewide office, even somewhere like New York. Could she get elected to the Senate? Could she get elected governor? I, mean, I have my doubts about that. But in October of this year, she turns 35. She's going to be old enough to run for president. I think Bernie Sanders is going to retire in a couple of years. So I could see AOC running for president in 2028 as a kind of factional Bernie 2.0 candidate that carries that message forward. Okay, Al, I, I just I, make one observation, turn it right back out. She has political talent, and political talent can take you places that other people can't go. And, you know, part of it would be the ability to adjust, And but let's see. I, 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 somehow or another, she might not be relegated to a long, influential career in the House, but I don't know that. Well, there, uh, there is no better... Uh, communicator in American politics. Whether you like the message or not, she communicates yeah. better than anyone. Josh, let me, I'm, I'm going to ask you something, though. How, how does Warren and even Sanders differ from the prominent Democratic liberals of 20 years ago, Ted Kennedy, Tom Harkin, Barney Frank? I, to me, they're, they're further to the left on economics, that they're really, they really are outsiders. I mean, the deeper history I tell in the book is about the rise of the modern Democratic Party in its relationship with Wall Street. You know, as a, as a writer and a magazine guy, one of the things that always interests me is the question of, well, like, well why is this happening? Like, and so after the 2008 financial crisis, I was embedded with Tim Geithner for a few months doing a big magazine profile. But I was also a columnist for the Boston Globe. And so I got to know 
Elizabeth Warren. I had a lot of off-the-record talks with her. And so I was kind of watching this Democratic split screen in real time. I'd spend the day with Geithner, who'd, who'd tell me why they had to bail out these banks, why that was a path forward. And I'd spend the evening talking to Warren, who said, this is terrible, and we need to kind of focus things on the middle class. I think that, that, that the importance of Warren and Sanders as these guys, that they, were, they tried to return Democratic politics to something like what it had been after FDR, where all of these government programs are essentially focused on, on the middle class and not on, and not on bankers. Um, if you look at what Democratic politics had revolved around in the 60s and the 70s, it kind of stopped being about economics. It was about environmentalism. It was about anti-Vietnam War. It was about civil rights. Even the even the kind of financial stuff there there was. It was more kind of Ralph Nader inflected. It was about you know putting seatbelts in cars, that sort of thing. It wasn't about regulating banks. It wasn't about really focusing on the middle class. I think that was especially true after Jimmy Carter's loss, when Democrats sort of freaked out and realized, all right, well, we gotta we gotta find a way to appeal to more people. We need to pivot toward the middle. Hot, you know, elect third-way Democrats like Bill Clinton, you know, and move in a fundamentally different direction. I, I think what Warren and Sanders represent after the crash is, is a movement back toward what Democrats traditionally were as the kind of the party of the working class that's focused on their well-being ahead of everything else. But both of you guys were around doing this stuff. I mean, James, you're a minor character in the book because, you know, when Bill Clinton got into office and suddenly was focused on the bond market, you were right. the guy that famously said, geez, when I'm, when I'm reincarnated, I don't want to come back as, as right. Babe Ruth or a 400 hitter. I want to come back, as, want to come back as, a bond, as, as the bond market because that terrifies everybody. And to me, that was such an important moment because it shows the sway that Wall Street had begun to have over the Democratic Party. Okay, okay. so I said bond market. That's all anybody talked about. And when you had the collapse of 2008, and I give a lot of speeches to these bankers, okay? And the bond market is the credit market, all right? And if you worry about high, you know, the bonds return high interest rates, guess what? You're going to pay more for a car loan. You're going to pay more for a house loan. And the idea that we don't need to be cognizant in the bond market is what, five times bigger than the stock market? But just to... And this is something that I know. These guys are smart. And what they don't like is they don't like someone is as smart or, in Warren's case, smarter than them. That's why they had to get rid of Elliot. Elliot was as smart as they were. They don't mind Trump. He's, he's dumber than concrete. He doesn't care. <laughs> All right? And as long as they have compliant people in there and they get in, in – the Democrats, it's, it's just you've been my soap opera for, for six or seven, but turn it back around. I'll tell you if our incoming Democratic president, I, I know exactly what the financial roundtable is going to do. I know exactly what Big Pharma is going to do. I know exactly what Lockheed and Boeing do. They are going to hire Democratic lobbyists and pay them well, and then they're going to cut everything up. And I would say, if you are a lobbyist and you work for any of these people, you cannot set foot in the White House. You cannot. No one will return your call. All right. Because that's exactly what happens every time. They go in with good intentions and then they, they get flooded with lobbying fees. And if you want to be serious, 
that's to, I've had my say. That's the way you be serious. You cut the fucking money off. Listen, look at the way uh, uh, private equity uh, kept that outrageous loophole uh, that they right. have. It was mainly Democratic lobbyists, including some that yeah. worked for Schumer and for uh, and for Pelosi. Um, you, you know, you mentioned, I think you're absolutely right, Josh, that uh, some of Warren's agenda was certainly picked up in, uh, in, in, in the environmental area and other areas. But her two big, big issues, I mean— Big ticket issues in 20 were wealth tax on billionaires and single payer health care. Yeah. They both are dead. I mean, neither one has gained any steam. Biden didn't pay any heed to, to those. He wants to expand the ACA, wants to, you know, have tax reform, but nothing like that. I, I, let me, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Uh, sure, absolutely. Look, Warren did not want to run for president in 2020 having Medicare for all be your big policy. The problem that all Democrats had was Bernie Sanders performed so strongly in 2016 right. that every viable Democratic candidate that had an eye on the White House for 2020 thought, oh, shit, I got to sit up and pay attention to what this guy is telling me if I want to get right with those voters and have them vote for me. Well, the thing that Bernie cared about was Medicare for All. So when he introduced his Medicare for All bill in 2017, all the Democratic presidential hopefuls went galloping in. You guys remember who the first one was, right? It wasn't some lefty, it was Kamala Harris. She went out and endorsed Medicare for All. And then all the other ones like, like you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves sort of tumbled all over themselves, you know, to do the Medicare for All too. Democrats, I think, mistakenly convinced themselves that what voters wanted was, was what Elizabeth Warren called big structural change. I don't think that's right. I think that they like economic populism. They want to focus on the middle class and they don't like Donald Trump. But the parts of her agenda that Joe Biden has taken up actually Al, do include a billionaire's tax. Nobody remembers this, but uh, Biden came out in last year's State of the Union address and endorsed the billionaire's tax. Now, in a 50-50 Senate, with a Republican House, obviously that's not going anywhere. Well, they never sent it up either. I mean, so well, it's right, not, because it's not yeah, going to yeah. it's not going to go right. anywhere. Up. But but, but as a measure of where the mainstream of the Democratic Party has moved from when you know Biden came to the Senate in the 1970s to what he's doing now, it has come a long way in the direction of where people like Elizabeth well, Warren and Bernie vote, wanted to. If anybody gave me a vote, I'd vote for a billionaire's tax in a moment. I don't even think half the Senate Democrats would. I think that is, uh, you know, a step too far. And I would note that Joe Biden never did endorse a single payer back in 2007. No, I don't think, yeah, 18. no, and I don't, I don't think anybody wants single payer. I mean, I, I think that's an example of kind of what James had talked about earlier of Democrats just going too far and kind of losing their minds, believing right. that, there's this huge mass of voters who will be activated if you talk about this kind of stuff and rush out to the polls and vote for you. And every example we have says that isn't true. Right. Josh, do you agree that since the financial crisis, Democrats, as, as you have chronicled, have moved to the left, but Republicans have moved much further to the right? Yeah, I think that's I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, my the, you know the narrative of the, of the rebels. My new book is is bookended by two financial crises, the 08 crash, which which I think set a lot of this off, but also the COVID crash that Biden inherited in 2020 after after the pandemic wrecked the economy even worse than than the 08 crash had. I think just looking at the Democratic responses to those two crises 
shows you how much the party has changed. In 08, when I was hanging around with Geithner, they had a, what, seven $800 billion bailout. And Geithner thought it all needed to go to the banks because he wanted to prop up confidence. He thought if the banks were growing, the economy was growing. He thought if that happened, it would trickle down to everybody else and it wouldn't cost the government a lot of money. And instead, America got angry. It took seven years to recover those jobs. In the meantime, you had Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party movement, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders. The whole country went crazy. But if you look at 2020, you can really see how much politicians learned from the experience of 08. In 2009, when I was hanging out with Warren, she actually had a, like a menu list of things that she wanted Obama to do in the bailout. Student loan forgiveness, small business loans, a couple rounds of stimulus focused on the middle class, eviction freeze. Democrats did almost none of that. But if you fast forward to 2020, Joe Biden did every one of those things. Yeah. And yeah. here we are two years after the COVID pandemic and stock markets at a record high. Jobs were recovered in two years. Unemployment is what it was back during Eisenhower's administration. You look at every economic number from consumer sentiment to expectations of Fed rate cuts. You have it. They're all pointing in the right direction. You know, the economic numbers at least say that we're on the cusp of mourning in America again. And if you're Joe Biden, that's what you want going into an election year. But I think a lot of that owes to the fact that Biden and mainstream Democrats, and also, frankly, uh, people like Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve, took a lesson from what happened in 2008, 2009. I know because I spoke to some of these people and said, you know, looking back, Elizabeth Warren had a point, and we're not going to make those mistakes again, and we haven't. Well, and this time, Elizabeth Warren was right, and Larry Summers was wrong. Sorry, Larry, you were wrong. You, were, you know, there was going to be a there was going to be a recession, probably a deep one. It was going to be really a disaster. So, uh, you know, he hates to think that Elizabeth Warren got something right that he didn't get right, but she did. You know, he did. I mean, I, I remember he came out. I think it was on Bloomberg where I work and predicted that, or, or 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 said that we would need five years of elevated unemployment to burn off inflation right. and get the economy back to two percent growth. And, you know, you look today and everybody on Wall Street thinks we're in for a soft landing. Inflation's under 3%. I don't know if you guys have checked your 401ks lately, but I checked mine last night and uh, look at, looking pretty good for Josh's retirement. You know, things are, yeah. things are in a Josh, record high. Josh, I'm glad for that, but don't retire. We need you around for a long time. <laughs> three cheers on that issue for Elizabeth Warren, two and three quarters for Jay Powell. Larry, I'm sorry you got shut out. James, you got something you want to add? Yeah, I guess the the one question that just I, I always just try to kill myself. All right, let, let's take the Democratic coalition. Let's take the left side of the coalition. First of all, you have to give these people credit. I mean, they they stuck with the Pelosi and Biden's early agenda pretty good. But where they the things that they kind of believe in. Uh, they're not harmful. I think they're naive, these kind of language crap. And some of the other stuff is, you know, Medicare for all. It just that's not practical. You're not going to kick 75 million people out of private health insurance. But it's not, a, it's not a horrible thing. These people, like, storm the Capitol. They, huge, huge percentages of them still think Trump won the 2020 election. Huge percentage of them don't really much care care about the Constitution. And all of the crazy, yet we pay the same price for what I would call naivety 
as they do for evil. And I, it just drives me freaking nuts. Do you have any idea how this, con- why this condition exists? You know, I, I think that on a certain, look, I don't want to equate, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to equate, you know, democratic socialists and progressives who want Medicare for all with the insurrectionists on January 6th. But but I I will say, I I, I do think that both of those things stem from a certain kind of self-interested delusion. You know, for the January 6th folks, you know, they're all QAnon freaks and, you know, they're, they're just living on a different planet when it comes to information and kind of how they view the world. Uh, but I think for progressives on the left, they really did believe, you know, I remember um, reporting for this book. I went over to Elizabeth Warren's condo in, uh, in DC. This was in the fall of 2019. It was during that brief moment when Warren was leading the polls, the democratic primary, she was talking about the billionaires tax. She seemed to kind of have all this momentum and I said to her, gee, you know, when I look at polling crosstabs, what Democrats really want is somebody who's going to get rid of Trump. And she said, well, I'm a fighter, and that's what I'm going to do. And I said, well, it seems to me that your big focus is on this big structural change, the Medicare stuff, the billionaire's tax, you know, the student loan forgiveness, whatever. And she kind of winked at me and said, well, look, if I get elected because people want to get rid of Donald Trump, and I've run on this big, robust platform of lefty policies that I'll have a mandate to kind of put them into practice. And uh, I, I do think that she was she was deluding herself. And a lot of a lot of Democrats were, too, because they wanted a kind of social democratic, Swedish, Nordic social policy in the U.S. They convinced themselves that a lot of voters did, too. And they, they kind of became detached from political reality, from what ordinary voters want. Uh, And I think the fact that both Warren and Bernie's presidential campaigns came to such an abrupt end was a reminder that you have to stay grounded in political reality and what ordinary middle class people want. And that may be a billionaire's tax and it may be, you know, higher taxes on the rich. It may be help for college aid, whatever, but it isn't doing away with private health insurance. And so, James, to, to settle your nerves a little bit, Going forward, I don't think you're going to have anybody in 2028 in the Democratic primary field running on a policy of Medicare for all. I think and I hope Democrats have learned their lesson on that. I think what you will have, especially if Biden wins reelection in the fall, is is a lot of candidates, not just lefties, but 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 moderates, too, running on a much more robust economic populist agenda along the lines of what Joe Biden has run on as president. I think that's a real path forward for my three characters and what they believe in. I don't think AOC is going to be president, but I do think that a Raphael Warnock or a Gretchen Whitmer would do well to adopt a lot of these things uh, and make it part of their platform if they decide to run for the White House in 2028. So my last kind of observation, I'm an over, overtired man. I get I go from one little obsession to the other. You know, it used to be the Battle of Vicksburg. Now it's left-wing politics over a period of time. And, and the French Revolution, they had all of these, you know, where you sat in the assembly and everything. But I read a lot of left-wing publications here. And almost to a person, they believe that there's dormant voters out there 
that yeah. once they hear the true message, well, the toiling masses or whatever are going to rise up and we're going to have massive turnout and they're going to overthrow the existing structures. Where does that shit come from? I got the answer for you. It comes from Bernie Sanders's mayoral race in Burlington. I tell this story in The Rebels of how, how Bernie first became a politician. He was, he was a kind of socialist crank, an activist in Burlington, you know, back in the 80s, back in the 90s, ran for mayor, got surprised everybody, got elected mayor by 10 votes over an incumbent Democrat who'd been there five terms, was kind of checked out, people didn't really like. And, you know, Sanders' mayor was actually a pretty practical-minded guy, worked hard at economic redevelopment, worked with the police in Burlington. The police union actually endorsed him when he was running for re-election his first time. But Sanders had a theory of the race about how he was going to stay in office. And that was to take him and his people. They went and knocked on every door in Burlington, Vermont. And they managed to double the size of the electorate. And two years later, Bernie gets reelected by four or 5,000, you know, gets elected in a cakewalk. Right. And so to Bernie's mind, and to the minds of people on the left, that taught them that there's this huge slumbering mass of people who, if you could only activate them by knocking on their door and telling them about all left-wing stuff you're going to do, will dutifully show up at the polls on election day and vote for you. I think the problem is, while that was true in a, maybe a, a, a small left-wing town like Burlington, Vermont, all the evidence we can see is that it really isn't true nationally. And I think the failure of, of Warren's presidential campaign, I think the failure of Bernie's presidential campaign illustrate that fact that, you know, I talked earlier about, about the kind of self-delusion that a lot of, a lot of political activists have. I think that's a stubborn one that doesn't seem to be going away. So that's something certainly that the progressive left is going to have to overcome in the future if they want to get elected. A line from my favorite song, I was blind, now I see. Josh Green, this is the, maybe the only time I'm ever going to, uh, not, not correct, but amend you. Actually, it goes back much further. It goes back to George McGovern in 1972. His whole case was we're going to bring out hordes of new voters. Now, I know literally, you were still yeah. in diapers in 1972, <laughs> so I'm not going to blame you. I know, literally. But that was the McGovern yeah. case, and of course we saw what happened in Election Day. You know, The Rebels is a terrific book. I want to recommend it to everyone out there. Josh, I know you got to get on a plane. Sure, yeah. You've been thank a great you, guest. And thank you a lot. I just can't thank you enough. Guys, thanks so much for having right. me on. I love, love talking right. politics Good with deal. you guys always. As I'm you ready know. to activate the sleeper cells. <laughs> <laughs> Start sleeping better with Miracle Mate. I listen to NPR probably more than I should, but they had a thing on about this whole sleep industry. It's enormous. People are seeing it now. Every study comes out that good night's sleep is related to not just how you feel, but your overall health and everything else. And Miracle Mates is a product that actually works. And, you know, there's studies that show that it does. And if you get 15% more, percent more sleep, oh, that's a lot. That's going to make a big difference. I, in fact, I wish I'd had an hour more last night. Well, you stayed up to watch Donald Trump. You couldn't resist. Anyway. Yeah. And that, when I see that son of a bitch, it just sends me in the orbit and I can't go to sleep. <laughs> 
That's why we need Miracle May. Now, you know, winter, winter's here, obviously, and the heaters are blasting. It used to mean struggling to find the perfect temperature. But there's a way to sleep in perfect comfort all night long using NASA-inspired silver-infused bed sheets by Miracle Made. Their self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding prevents 99.7% of bacteria and requires three times less laundry because they stay fresher three times longer. You'll stop sleeping on bacteria that can clog your pores and cause breakouts and acne. So sleep clean with Miracle and trust us with no more gross odors. Life is a whole lot easier on your spouse. That's because they use temperature-regulating silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA for maximum comfort. Imagine getting better sleep every night. Even better, Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands. They feel as nice or even nicer than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. You'll feel like you're on vacation every time you get into bed. Go to trymiracle.com slash warroom to try Miracle-made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo, warroom, at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle's so confident in their product, it's back with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash warroom and use the code warroom to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash warroom to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Now, you also can find the link in our show notes. Now for the Outrage of the Week, I'm going to pick up on something that James alluded to earlier on the, enabler, the enablers of evil. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the country's most powerful bank, told a gathering of the privileged at Davos that Donald Trump's record as president, you know, was pretty good. Quote, be honest, end quote, the billionaire banker urged. Trump was kind of right about NATO, immigration, the economy, his tax reform work well. Mr. Diamond may be unaware of Trump's views on NATO, which are, quote, I don't give a shit about NATO, end quote. His for that came uh, from the Oval Office. His former national security advisor, John Bolton, and the great journalist, Ann Applebaum, both say if elected, he'll withdraw from NATO. I don't think you want that, Mr. Diamond. On immigration, what was the banker's favorite Trump achievement? Separating migrant children from their parents? or building that wall that Mexico would pay for, which, of course, never happened. Now, the tax reform bill did do very well for billionaires like Mr. Diamond, who made $36 million last year just in salary. But it did nothing for that clerk at J.P. Morgan who makes thirty-six grand a year except run trillions of red ink for his grandchildren. You know, maybe he should heed the warnings of former Trump chief of staff John Kelly, or his defense chief, Jim Mattis, or the former head of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, who believed Trump would rule, if he is reelected, like a more ruthless and determined autocrat. His favorite European leader is Hungary's Viktor Orban. You know, bankers depend on honoring the rule of law, 
and democratic values. That's exactly what a President Trump would not do, as wise men like retired conservative Court of Appeals Judge Michael Ludig has warned. So, Mr. Diamond, you're a very learned man, but you might want to go back and read the histories of Germany and Italy almost 100 years ago uh, and see what the enablers were saying in those times. Then, you know, it might be easier to be really honest. So, I uh, I, I know, uh, Jamie, for, for a while, I've done uh, speeches for J.P. Morgan, and I, 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 I'm going to give them some free advice at the, the PR department, Okay. When asked about just just say Jamie had altitude sickness, mm-hmm. all right? Don't don't try to answer because there's no answer, all right? There's nothing. It was a, a giant mega screw up, and just say he doesn't tolerate atmosphere well. I, I think my wife and I have stock in his bank, and thank God he runs a goddamn thing from sea level. <laughs> James, we have, again, some great questions from our fabulous listeners. The first one is just made for you. It's Jim in Bocas del Toro, Panama, who says, Mitch Landro is now working for the Biden campaign. He's a great communicator. Might he be available in 2028? I fervently hope so. You're right. He is the kind of campaign chairman. I think that's... Hopefully, they'll, they'll put him out front more, and he's a great politician. I, I, I thought that was an encouraging sign. I've been to Panama many times, and I, just like a, a point to make, it's about the environmental stuff, and people say we got to really focus on real issues. The Panama Canal is drying up because of drought, and they can't take near as many ships as they could before which, of course, is going to back up the supply chain, which, of course, is going to cause inflation. And in, it's going to be a lot of stuff in the, the to solve this issue. They're going to have to drain stuff and people are not going to have water. It's a, it's a terrible problem. It's a key set of real estate in the entire world. And thanks to these, you know, anti-climate assholes, it's getting worse and going to continue to get worse. Yeah, for sure. All right, our next question is from Chad in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, who asks, could ditching Kamala Harris for Bernie Sanders save the ticket? He would shore up the left to make waves in the Midwest. Chad, I know you're a smart person because you're listening to this show, so it goes without saying you're smart. I got to tell you, you know, just as a broken clock is right twice a day, this is one of the two times a day you might be wrong. Picking an 82-year-old vice president to run with an 81-year-old president, that ain't going to cut it. And whatever we wish, Kamala Harris is not going to be replaced at this stage. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's one of these things when you're drunk at night and theorizing on things. But, you know, I appreciate the question, but that. It's it's not going to happen, and be it should not. James John in Sonoma, California. I got a I got a sense that John in Sonoma is one of our regular listeners who regularly ask good questions. He recalls back in 1996, it was Bob Dole's turn. No significant party people could tell him to step aside. Isn't it the same with Biden? Is politeness the path 
to fascist America. Not that anybody would accuse other Dole or Biden of being a fascist. Yeah, I, 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 both of us in this show expressed the desire that, that we would run for re-election. Uh, we thought there were any number of candidates that would have been much stronger. Uh, that did not come to pass, and now we're in an existential struggle to save the Constitution. So uh, you're right, but, uh, you know, as they say in the Marine Corps, wish in one hand, shit in the other, see which one fills up the fastest, and we've yeah. got to forge ahead here. Sam in Toledo, Ohio, asked, with so many members of both parties unhappy with their likely nominees, would we be better served to return to giving party leaders more power to select candidates? How could this be accomplished? You know, I've always thought that the reforms went a little bit too far. I think every member of Congress, every state officer, uh, every, um, you know, DNC or RNC uh, chair or national committee person should be automatic delegates to the Democratic and Republican conventions for a simple reason. It would be peer review. But you know something? No peer review would have saved the Republicans from Donald Trump because they're all petrified of him. So, Sam, yeah, you know, I think we went too far. It'd be nice to dial it back. Uh, but I wonder whether it's going to make a big difference now. Well, first of all, the question we talked about, the elected wing of the Democratic Party just folded. Right. right. There's nobody that stood up and said of, of any consequence in the party. Said, so y'all sure this was a good idea? Maybe we try something else? I mean, if anything, the public, the, the Democrat, the rank and file Democrats expressed more skepticism about Biden run for re-election than the elected Democrats did. I, I, my own view is, is that the year 2023 is going to be looked back by historians as a time of extreme cowardness in the Democratic Party. But that decision is made, and barring something unforeseen, we're just going to have to soldier on. But the, the, the Democratic voting public, I think, were ahead of the Democratic elected official, officials on this. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, James Pete in Phoenix, Arizona says in some battleground states like Arizona, could a no-labels candidate actually help Democrats? Are there any other states it could help us, Pete as a Democrat, rather than hurting us? Maybe. I, 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 I don't think so. I, I, it, it would depend on if the campaign went forward, who no-labels ran, uh, how, how did they do it? I'm, I'm very skeptical of a group that's going to be something new and fresh and different that does not disclose its donors. But if that's somebody's idea of refreshing change in America, we're entitled to that opinion. But please do not ask me to not only agree with it, don't ask me to even respect it because it's an idiotic yeah. opinion. Yeah, they're being sued by somebody now for a scam, I saw. Um, next, Quaid in Richmond, Virginia says, Roe is just the first of many personal liberties and freedoms that the far right has in their agenda. When are the Democrats going to raise the alarm that this is the first of our liberties to be taken and not the last one? Well, first of all, Quaid, you're right. I mean, Clarence Thomas and others have already said, you know, they want to go after uh, uh, gay marriage and some other things, and they will. Pay attention to what they say because then they end up doing it. And I think all they need is one or two more court appointments. Uh, and I think that um, gay rights would be, certainly gay marriage would be in real trouble. They have no compulsion at all about overturning 
precedent. They overturned Roe. Now they're going to overturn. It looks like Chevron. So uh, this this far this far right Republican majority court uh, uh, could do an awful lot more damage. And I think you're right. It ought to be raised because it's very legitimate. And Clarence Thomas, among others, has said, I want to do it. So there is a very important movie coming out. I, I think it's February 16th, but you got to double check. Me right. Rob Ryan, right. the great Rob Ryan, okay, on Christian nationalism. You cannot imagine how anti-American, how dangerous, how authoritarian, how anti-democratic this is. You can't imagine. But because you don't know about it, is frankly a failure of communications. And understand, Trump is going to turn the government over to these people. He doesn't give a shit. They'll let him steal all he wants. They'll let him do any power grab. And you're going to end up, you know, he, he already tipped his hand. He showed you what he was going to do on the Supreme Court. They're going to let these people take over. And just so you know, they believe that the United States Constitution was ordained and inspired by Jesus Christ and that the First Amendment only applies to Christians and that democracy is a waste of time. And they, if, if, if that's the normalization of Donald Trump. You think that's normal? Because that is what is going to happen. That is what exactly what's going to happen. When you're sitting there at the hotel Fort Des Moines in the basement, you know, telling war stories and acting like it's, it's a choice between one and two, Inform yourself on what Christian nationalism is. They have to speak at the House. And as Marjorie Taylor Greene says, look, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a nationalist. What's wrong with that? The answer is everything. And you cannot be a remotely good citizen unless you familiarize yourself with this concept. I would suggest watching Rob's movie. I, I, I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be informative. And if this don't scare the shit out of you, nothing Well, next will. week we'll give you the exact release date. I think you're just about right, though, um, um, uh, James. Uh, you know, let me, uh, you know, they, they cite Jesus as the uh, inspiration for, uh, for Donald Trump, that God sent Trump down here and he's following you. I, I don't know, maybe I didn't read the Bible carefully enough. Did Jesus ever embrace rape, James? Uh, <laughs> Embrace love your neighbor as yourself, but it's, it says nothing. This is everything to do with power. People don't care about Jesus. Jesus is. It's all about their power. And there's everybody who's done a horrific job in informing people. And, and remember, they're not going to get a majority. They don't need a majority. We talk about Germany, you know, Hitler never right. got more than a third. And, and of course, the, the, all of the people said, don't worry, the, the, you know, the, the people in Berlin, the, the BMW people handled him. <laughs> they handled him, <laughs> made a fortune off of it. Same thing will happen now. The, it's, citizens, you're not being told. You have to educate yourself. There are dangers out there that are far far, far greater than anyone can imagine. I have no idea why there have not been more exposure on this movement. They have billions of dollars. Billions. You understand that? And they're not going to get 50%, but if they get Trump, 
they win everything. Because Trump don't right. care. It, it, it didn't matter to him. But, but as long as as long as they're getting his cut, and, and they'll be very careful to get their money from their own people and not right. cut into Trump's. Uh, he may take a piece of what they get from their own people. Right. Oh, yeah, he might. Yeah, they'd, they'd give right. him a 15% I mean, that's service. that's what he demands, usually. James, we have apparently a good following down in the Palmetto State, because this is another question. Jay in Columbia, South Carolina, asks, is, is Trump oh, a political wow. genius who has such profound insights into a portion of the electorate, or is he crazy lucky, uh, just crazy lucky? And what do you think of the power of mockery to break his hold? You've been listening to you, James. Well, I'm telling you, I, I think that mockery is a very important part of the strategy. You know, a equally important part of the strategy is denormalization. All right, and, and I think the two fit together. And everything that Trump, the way that Trump wins, is. So I, I was on television, on cable network, and I said, "You realize that Trump." has been adjudicated to be a rapist. The judge said and a jury found that in the common parlance of the word, he raped somebody. And this particular journalist says, we covered that story. That's a great myth. I said it once. How many times did Fox talk about Hillary's email or anybody? How many times did we talk about the emails? A million. How many times did they talk about the southern border? A million. How many times do people talk about the Trump, the fact that Trump is a rapist? They don't. Well, we covered that. We did it. Why don't you tell you what us to do? And that's why we ending up in the situation we're in. That's exactly why. And in, in, keep telling people, and I will keep telling you, the Calvary ain't fucking coming. They're not coming. They're not going to blow the bugle. It, it's all they know how to do is to talk about there's two sides to this. And the only thing that's going to assure that this doesn't happen is an engaged, active, and aggressive citizenry. I believe well, that. Well, the cavalry may not be coming, but we got Corporal Carville, uh, and I think that's more than, uh, more than enough. <laughs> so stick with it. Please keep those uh, good questions coming in. If we didn't get to yours this week, we'll get to it again next week, uh, you know, because we really appreciate our listeners. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Now, don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Now, following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Earth Breeze and Miracle Made, in our episode show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You also can find shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. 